The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2021 Campus Outreach New Year's Conference. More information about Campus Outreach New Year's Conference can be found at conycindy.com. As one who's been known to my dad actually used to call me the mouth of the South, we, I do live in Minneapolis right now. I'm a Minnesotan, but I grew up in East Tennessee, and I don't know. The girl likes to talk, so dad, thanks, mouth of the South. So I'm setting my timer so I can see what time it is. I'll tell you what I'm thinking that we might do at this time. Um, but I am flexible and I'm ready to turn on a dime, if that's what we need. So we are here for you. That's what this is about. If you came because you're like, I have questions, that topic, or because I do have questions, this is for you. And I noticed when we were listening to the rally last night, um, really enjoyed some of the things that um, Pastor D said. I was trying to remember what we were supposed to call him. Um, really appreciated some of the things that he said. Um, one of the things he said is, um, is what you love getting the most of you, or is it making making the best of you? I wrote it down more easily than I just said it. But some really good things that you said. But one of the things that I noticed is that there's an assumption here while we're talking that people know the Bible, that they might have brought their Bible, or they've got it in a quick app on their phone. And a couple other things that I thought, oh, that is this, that is what it was like for me when I grew up in East Tennessee where everyone was familiar-ish with Christianity, with the Bible. When I moved to Minneapolis in 2003, um, it was the beginning of me realizing, oh, there's a whole new world where people are not, they don't, they don't one girl asked me, um, is there a page number in the Bible that I'm supposed to be looking at? You keep saying words, like Matthew or Philippians. And I was like, oh, she has, that's great, that's so helpful to know no understanding of how the Bible is laid out. So it was a different um, arena that I stepped into when I was in Minneapolis where people would just say, oh yeah, I'm totally not a Christian. I was just talking to AJ and he said, most of the college students that I'm talking to when I meet them, they'll say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And then that actually has nothing to do with their life or decisions that they make or how they do what they do. It's just something completely separate, but it's attached to them. So like, yeah, I'm definitely a Christian. My experience in Minneapolis has been, and my girls who are 13 and 11, the experience is you do not say that you are a Christian unless you are a Christian. I see Liz, who is in law school, and same thing there. She was on staff with us at the University of Minnesota and then in law school, and no one is saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, and then this is how I live. It's like, if you are a Christian, there are assumptions that come with that, and there is a major capital loss on, it's not helping you out. You're not getting any gain from saying, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. It's usually like, when do I let them know? Because that's going to be maybe a conversation killer. Because So how do I let them know, hey, I just want to let you know. So I did it with my neighbors. I just want to let you know that you and I are probably coming from very different ends of spectrums on what we believe. We agree on so many things, like we've got to do better with immigrants and refugees who are trying to get into the U.S. We would totally agree on that topic, but the difference that we're going to have is I am agreeing with you on that because of my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe the Bible, I'm Christian, would be what. And she was like, oh. I'm like, yeah, which is why I also probably disagree with you on things like what we do about human rights for the unborn. Because I'm kind of holding both of those together because of my faith in Christ, but you coming from your worldview are only agreeing with me on one of those and not the other, I'm assuming. And she was like, no, you're right. I'm yes on one of those and no on the other. So it was like, how do I bring, how do I keep our conversation going when I break the news that I'm a Christian and keep it going? And so now, having been neighbors for a while, we have many conversations like that. But that wasn't even the notes. I was just going to tell you all. Um, officially starting our seminar um, I want to tell you a little about, about why I'm doing the seminar for a number of reasons. One, I've always been a question asker. I know it's going to seem really strange. When I was young, I think I was seven, um, we were in the car with my parents on a long trip, and I said, um, they were asking me why I was so quiet, and I said, I'm just trying to think. And they were like, think about what? I was like, think about why we have life. And they were like, 
okay, seven-year-old. I was like, I mean, what I mean is like, why do we, we're going on a vacation, but then we'll have a vacation, then it'll be over, and then we go back to school, and then we might have another vacation. But what is, and I think in my seven-year-old, what I was trying to say is like, what is the purpose of life? Do you just go from fun thing to fun thing and it ends and then you don't go and you wait for the next fun thing? Like, what? why are we living? What is the purpose of life? So my parents, who came from a Christian background, did what any people are coming from a Christian background. They scheduled an appointment with my dad's buddy that he met in college who was a Jewish psychologist. They were so worried about me. <laughs> so next week we get back from vacation and Sam Poteet is sitting down at the Jewish psychologist's office and bubbling in circles about questions and answers. And his conclusion was that I needed more things to look forward to, so he needed that my dad needed to take me on a date every week. And so we did get that out of that. I did get to go on a date with my dad every week. Didn't I get my questions answered? Um, which is why I was always cornering people that I'm like, I think they're thinking the same way I am. And I would corner people at our church, or we would go to these um, Christian things, kind of like this, but for high schoolers. And I would find someone, I'm like, okay, you, like, this just isn't self-evident. Like, there are other religions that have very other plausible things that they're believing, and they're putting their whole life into that. Have you wrestled with that? So I have always been a question asker. That has been at the core of who I was since seven years old. Um, and then when I was in college and had come to faith, like, I think, yes, Jesus Christ is real. And I came to faith when I went to college. I thought, I just need to get all of the data, the research the archaeological evidence, I need to get all of that stuff, and I studied, I just had a whole section on my bookshelf that was just books that explained evidence for archaeological evidence, scientific evidence. I was like, I just need to get all this data, and I would read all of those, um, and then whenever anyone would ask me a question, friends of mine who weren't believers in college, I would get one of these books out, and they were like, no, no. So that, that also didn't go well, but I was asking questions of the same. But we'll say this, and this is the end of my, my journey um, in, in question asking, though I still ask questions at points. But this, would be, this last one would be the one that goes like this. Um, there are times when great suffering in my life or great suffering in friends of my lives or when I see continued great suffering, that is the thing that um, does it to me again, where I'm like, okay, wait. What do we believe in what is true? And how do I know? And how does that engage the, these things that are happening? I mean, friends, which we have time at the end, friends of mine who have just had wave on wave on wave of wave of unbelievable, unspeakable, overwhelming, unfair pain. And no break. And when I am sitting with them and talking to them, there are times when I'm like, okay, here we go again. I'm asking these questions and I need to do, I'm on this journey and I need to get back on what do I know? How do I know what is true? How do I engage these things? So that um, is part of the reason I'm doing this seminar because I would have been at this seminar and then I would have tried to get some time with me afterwards because I'm like, what about this? And so though we won't be able to do that, I do have a list of resources that I will give you at the end. Um, I have a couple of links. I tried to get it to share it. A couple of links that are pages of resources. And then I even brought a couple of resources. Um, if anyone wants it, it's my smallest. But I'm like, okay. Bought a bunch of these, so if somebody wants this one. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote, Is Christmas Unbelievable? I really like her. She's a PhD from Cambridge University. I've heard her speak a number of times. She wrote a more thorough book if you weren't looking for it. I mean, that's a that's probably a 15, 20-minute read, depending on depending on how fast you read. So you can have that one after this if you're like, yes. Her better book, I think, is Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Um, she's funny, she's snarky, that is my love language, snark and humor, so I really love that. And she's pulling all of these very real, I mean, my girls and I are just listening, Paul and my girls and I are listening to Harry Potter audiobook on our 10-hour drive back and forth from here in Minneapolis, among some other things, and she makes some references to that and to Hamilton, and so I'm like, ah, like these are things that are right in this moment. I love that about her. That's my water bottle. Um... So I will give some resources at the end, and especially if you think I, I couldn't get the list to print to the, um, to put on the screen, but I have a, a link that I can share with you if you want to have it that has lists of if you have questions in this arena, in this arena, in this arena. So I'll give you that at the end. Um, and I have a few stories because I have spent the last 25 years not just struggling with these things and reading the Bible and questioning these things, but I've also had a lot of conversations. Some of those went well. 
because I loved people well and some of them did not go well and I wish I could have them back because I was not a good listener and did not do well. And so um, I have learned about that, but 25 years of having conversations and learning a lot from the people who sat with me over coffee or lunch and asked questions and challenged me as we were looking at things together. So I have some stories from that that I feel like I've learned from them because of that. And so might have time to share those. So what I'm thinking is, right now, I will just give you a brief, entirely unsatisfactory, because we really only have like 45 minutes. So a brief, unsatisfactory, high flyover of three main areas that a lot of people would say, this is why I question Christianity, or this is why I'm a skeptic. This, so I have three different areas. One of those is just the idea of truth, like how do you know? Um, that would be one area that I want to give you a flyover on. And then the second area would be people pain. And that one is a very big one and increasingly um, painful one for us to be a part of. The pain, people pain. And then the third one is individual perspective. Sometimes they're just individual perspective things that people have that bring them into a state of skepticism because of Christianity. So I'll do a flyover of those three things, kind of tell you a story give you an idea of what it is and some ideas about it. There is a number that we're going to put up here. AJ, I didn't mean to wait until you were eating. Is it up there? Okay. Um, I have a friend, Daniel Remeride, who isn't even in the room right now, which is okay. He'll be here. Um, but he said, what if it helps? I have three by five cards. We have a small enough group where we probably could do questions. But if you do not want to raise your hand and ask a question and you want to text your question to him, he will just go through those numbers and then delete your number after, but he's going to come sit up here and then at the toward the end we have Q&A. If people aren't raising their hands, and we'll go through, we'll maybe raised hand, and then he'll read a question, and we'll do it that way. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. If you are not a Christian here, I want to tell you I am most excited about you being here. You're my favorite kind of people because you ask questions that impact me and change the way that I learn and the way that I think about what I believe and why I believe it. And so I'm really grateful for you being here. Conferences can be super, super uncomfortable for lots of people, <laughs> but especially you. And so thanks for being here. Um, and I really would love to hear your questions. And also I know there are people that just said, I'm here because I want to hear what other people are asking. Like we're in a different um, world than we were a few years ago, maybe even when you were in middle school or high school. The world that we're in and the way that Christianity is being navigated is different. And so we may just have questions from that, and that's okay too. Tomorrow morning, my husband Paul Petit will be doing a talk that is exactly that. It's called The Water That We're Swimming In and just how things have changed and then how that's impacting you, whether you are a follower of Christ or not, and some things to think about. So realize that that. Um, that may be new for you. Um, I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk to God because I believe that I cannot do anything. You're here because he brought you here. And I believe that the things that could be done in your heart for belief are going to be because he does it. And so if you don't have to pray with me, if you don't want to, I'm just going to pray for us and ask for his help. Um, God, thank you so much for being the God who cares, the God who is near, the God who knows, the God who knows who's in this room because you drew people here, and you drew me to yourself so that I am an un, undeserving, loved by God um, woman. And that's because of the work that you've done in my heart. God, thank you for the stories that you've been writing about that. There are stories of people in this room who would say, he, did, he just did it. He just gave me an opportunity to believe, and he did it through people or through reasoning or through that book that I read or through that seminar or through that conversation with a friend. And so, God, thank you that you use many avenues to draw people to yourself because um, I believe what Blaise Pascal said, that we were created with a void in our heart, and that void can be filled with many things, but it's actually God-shaped. And so we want you to fill it, and I pray that with thanksgiving, with joy for the people that you brought in this room, help me as we move forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the first one that I'm going to do is that first area that a lot of people often um, talk about, and that's truth. That question of, is this true? Um, we were, I was walking on campus with Ellen. I saw her earlier. Um, Ellen and I were walking on campus just to meet a few students and say, hey, what do you think about Christianity? I mean, we asked other questions. We asked them permission to ask them questions. Like, would it be okay if we asked you three questions, two minutes? And when they said yes, eventually we got to, if you were going to say anything about Christianity, what would you say? If you could talk to Christians, what would you say? Very interesting conversations. Um, 
but the only one I want to draw my attention to is one of the women that we were talking to, great, Daniel and Melanie. Microphone up here, Daniel, because people are going to text you questions, and then you can give them to me at the end. Um, so one of the things that one of the women said to us while she was sitting outside, and she said, I mean, we don't even know if Jesus existed, right? And I thought, oh my word, I haven't heard that one. Um, I shouldn't have been surprised, but that was her question, and that actually, it, I, that made me realize there are a lot of people who are like, wait, do we even believe this guy's like Santa, Jesus? Um, which is so helpful to me, because what I know in that moment is, oh, actually, that one's kind of easy. Historically, I don't know many scholars who are questioning the historical figure of Jesus Christ, and have we have people who were not Christians and against Christianity who wrote about him, and so that one's an easy one, but what I realized is we were asking a few more questions because I said, if I could give you some books and things from people who are not Christians who actually believe that he existed and that he has some teachings that are even recorded in scripture, would you be interested? And apparently the answer was no. She was like, ah, we would change the subject, talked about some other things, but Ellen reached out to her and she just wasn't, she gave us her phone number, but didn't reach back out. So this is why I'm saying that, because even if we could show that Jesus did exist, a lot of people are like, who cares? Don't care, don't need him, don't want him, and so don't want you to waste your breath and don't want to waste my time hearing you tell me why he was a historical figure. And this is why I just want to start and say, under this section of truth, which is my first, why should she care? I've prayed for her since then. I'm sure you'd have too, Ellen. I've prayed for her. Why should she care? Why should we care? I'm just going to give you four things about what Christianity holds out that is a game changer, life changer now and in eternity. And the first one is just that the, plot, the, the offer of Christianity is that Jesus Christ saved you by grace, which means nothing had, none of it had to do with you. It wasn't your intellect. It wasn't your righteousness. It wasn't your goodness. It wasn't how great of a character you have. Jesus saved you by grace and loves you unconditionally, which means there isn't anything about you now or in the future that could change his love for you. That's what unconditional love. So that's just the first thing. Jesus saved you by grace and loves you unconditionally. The second thing that we believe as Christians um, is that God has a plan, which means that means everything matters in your life. There isn't any insignificant detail in your life. No suffering that you've walked through that's been insignificant. No moment of your time that is insignificant. The Christian belief is that God has a plan making everything matters. Everything has significance because of who he is. That would be the second thing. The third thing is that after you die, I just um, walked with my family to buy a burial plot for some of my family members whose death is more pending. Um, you think about that when you're standing in the graveyard and you're looking at family members or other people and, oh, that was 20, 2021. I haven't seen the 2021. There it is on the gravestone. After death is the third thing. You become part of a, a love and glory that is eternal. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is Jesus, the person that we believe, died on the cross and bodily raised, and there are tons of eyewitnesses, and there are um, tons of documentation about his risen body. That same Jesus ascended into heaven and bodily is going to come back, and when he does, he is going to make everything right. That means that every wrong that has been done will be righted. That means that everything that we've lost out on will be restored. There is a healing, restoring, forever vengeance for wrong that was never taken care of here. Because he's not just coming back to restore, he's coming back to bring vengeance where wrong not answered will be answered. So those are four things about Christianity that are pretty basic premises that I would say to our friend who did not want to talk more, which is fine. I pray for her. I'm like, she didn't care if I could tell her evidence of Jesus being a real person. It's okay, but that's why I would want her to care. We didn't even get to have that conversation. But I think in the truth area, that's why we have to say, who gives a rip? Who cares if it's true? I think those are four pretty, if they're true, and I believe they are, those matter. That is why we should care if this is true. And it's why it should change our life. So that when people are walking around like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and that I made me do with my life, I'm like, I'm not sure you know what that means. I'm not sure you know what that means because this is a game changer. This changes everything. Okay, that's just in the truth. But this is 
how this conversation usually starts. It's usually in the, in the um, conversation with someone, they say, oh, well, I believe in science. Um, that actually happened to my fifth grader. She went to school and she was like, wait, this friend that I've been playing with for six years, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what she believes because we talked about people not believing Jesus. And she said, hey, I'm a Christian. She told her this at recess. Are you a Christian? She said, no, I believe in science. Um, and I thought, so the girls came home and they're like, wait, do, do, do we believe in science? I'm like, yes. <laughs> you have two biology major parents and a couple of physicians in the family who have banked their whole life on science working. We believe in science. But why is it that people would say that? What about science keeps people from thinking that they can believe that there's a God or a true God in the Bible that's described in the Bible? Um, a more mature and longer conversation that we were able to have was a woman that was in the veterinary school at University of Minnesota. She actually just popped into church when my husband happened to be doing a sermon, and he was like, hey, and if you're not a believer, gosh, thanks for being here. A comfortable place to be, but if you want to talk more, come talk to me. My wife will have you over for dinner. And this woman came down, she was like, oh, I'm a veterinary student at the University of Minnesota. And my boyfriend said, we can't move forward if I don't consider Christianity, so I'm here. And I just want to know, um, I mean, what do you have to say? I mean, I'm a veterinarian. I'm, I believe in science. And we're like, great. What about science? So we started what ended up being years of friendship and conversations. And she and her husband love Jesus, and they're good friends of ours. And, but we had a long, many conversations of her saying, yep, still. Nope. Here's another book. What about this? And she's like, oh, no, that... That is interesting, but conversations dialogue over years before she got to that place to say, I understand completely now how science and, and faith can come together. So I think that's an important question for people to ask. Um, I want to read a little clip from a um, section from Re Rebecca McLaughlin who kind of addresses this idea that these are not incompatible. She says, the first problem with the science versus Christianity story is that modern science was actually first developed by Christians, not despite their belief in a creator, but because of their belief in a creator. She said, I learned this from my Princeton professor, Hans Halverson, one of the top philosophers of science in the world, in the world, that the pioneers of what we now call science reasoned that if the universe was made by a rational, consistent God, which is what the Bible claims, then we can expect it to run according to rational, consistent laws. So the first scientists actually opposed to the church in many places. They were like, hey, I'm reading the Bible, and this is what I'm seeing, that this rational God should have a rational universe. It isn't just mystery and darkness, but it's actually there are laws that function here. So I, one of my resources that I'll give you if you want to hear it, I just was listening to Jonathan Fung. He is a professor of physics and astronomy at University of California, Irvine. And he has done an incredible breakthrough research on dark matter. So he has a couple of different clips where he's sharing, as a scientist in the scientific community, where you are not allowed to presuppose God, but actually have to take a leap of faith and presuppose not God, which is a different leap of faith. But because of that, he said, this is how I function as a scientist. This is how I think about dark matter and the cosmology. And so then when the... Um, his vocabulary started going over my head. I just paused and I was like, I'll share this with anybody who wants to watch it. I'm just kidding. I listened to the whole thing. Understood. Um, so we can get lost in the conversation about the realm of science, which also starts with the assumption of no God and forget that there's a leap of faith that has to happen for them. So Christians are not the only ones on, um, on the stand. Um, anybody that lives in light of some kind of, of truth is on the stand on because they have a leap of faith for so much of what they believe. That's why much of science are theories. They're not things that we can prove. There's so much that we cannot prove. We cannot prove history. We cannot even prove after you leave here that you were here. We can give some plausible evidence that you were here, like a picture, but who knows how to Photoshop. We have no evidence when you leave here that you were here. We have evidence. We do not have proof. And that is where science and Christianity, there are many things that we cannot prove as, and science says the same thing, so we have leaps of faith in all of those areas. Um, there's one more thing that I want to say about the truth area, and that is that there are a number of people, friends of mine, who are not believers, who are in the scientific community and hold tight that science and Christianity are inconsistent. But one of the conversations that we have that is the most interesting is that their belief, for example, in evolution does not lead 
them to another belief they hold strongly, like the belief of equality, or freedom, or human rights. Those things do not go together. Morality does not come from science, and so scientists who dis, um, divorce their scientific belief from faith in a God are not able to always explain the morality out of which they're living. And in many ways, it should logically follow that there's nothing wrong with the doggy dog world. What's wrong with the powerful overcoming the weak? Um, within the science and history of science, that is something that's observed and repeatable and often happens. But this thing that's happening in humanity where we're saying, no, there's a different rule. There's a different standard, a different moral. And it's that we protect the vulnerable, that we protect those who are weaker, that we subdue those who are stronger to make sure that there is equality. When those things are happening, um, that's an inconsistent place. So science studies what is. It does not study what should be. Science studies what is, not what should be, but every scientist lives in a should-be world so that it wouldn't be very hard to offend them um, by asking, you know, giving them change for a dollar when they should be getting 50. Um, that's immoral. But there, we live in a should-be world that science is studying what is. I'll just give you one. Oh, I typed it out. There is an Israeli um, philosopher. He, his name is Yuval Harari. He wrote a book that was a bestseller called Sapiens. A Brief History of Humankind. Not a Christian, and this is what he says. As far as we can tell from the purely scientific viewpoint, human life has absolutely no meaning. Humans are the outcome of blind evolutionary processes that operate without goal or purpose. Our actions are not part of some divine cosmic plan. Hence, any meaning that people ascribe to their lives is just a delusion. So that's an overview on truth and some of the things to consider in that. Second one, I'll go a little more quickly, is people pain. I have neighbors that explained to me over time after we built a relationship that one of the things that they were shocked about was our identification as believers because they had experienced people who claimed Christianity but had really mistreated them in their home country. Um, so they had been judged and experienced hatred from people in their home country. They, some of them were coming from a Hindu background, some of them were just from a don't care, don't know, agnostic background. Um, so that was another reminder, gosh, people pain can really cause people to think, I don't know if I want Christianity, and that makes sense. And you would be, I'm not going to ask people to raise their hands, but anyone in here who has not been hurt by people who claim to be Christians would be in a far, far minority. And that's super, super sad and a super big reality. So we have not only present people pain, but we have historical injustices in <coughs> churches historical injustice too innumerable to go through, and that's a different talk, but what we know is that justice is a concept that comes from God. Dignity of every human is a concept that comes from God because we believe in the Mago Dei. God created every person in his image, and if you do not have the mental capacity that I do, that has nothing to do with your dignity and value. I cannot take dignity or value from you, I can only reflect what God has given. That is a Christian view. And I think that there are um, just a, a few examples. Um, Nelson Mandela, Mandela, who was the first president of South Africa, his aunt, he was an anti-apartheid revolutionary where there was a small minority of white people holding power over the people that were in the country that were um, native there. And he attributes his faith in God to his crusade and his suffering to bring justice and break the apartheid. His faith in God is what motivated him to do something that was so astronomically bigger than anyone can imagine to overcome because history and power were against him and he suffered for a long time for justice because of his belief in God. Another person that you may not have heard of in Europe, William Wilberforce, because of his faith, he used his position in parla Parliament to abolish slave trade in Europe um, and then tried to influence the United States, sadly not as effectively as he did in Europe. So what I'm saying is that justice and injustices that have happened historically, we can say how wrong and bad that is because of the justice that is defined by the God of the Bible. Um, today we have present-day hypocrisy and moral failure painful treatment of other people by Christians. And I just want to say to you, if you are a believer, a follower of Christ in this room, I just want to remind you, remind us, that the Bible actually gives us a heads up on how broken people are through history. That is one of the saddest, hardest things. When people read the Bible, actually read the whole Bible, 
then sometimes there's another like, oh, faith jump because they're like, people were bad and did evil things in the Bible and they were God's people. And I'm like, that's right. This is not a big secret. This is not a new thing that just came out. People are failing colossally and hurting other people that God says wrong. This is historically documented in the Bible and it is grievous. The Bible actually gives us, um, those of us with faith are asked to continue to examine ourselves by lists of what it means to be holy and loving. Galatians 5, Micah 6, 8, a little more concise, but to do. What does God require of you, believer, follower of Christ? What does God require of you but to do justice and to love mercy? And then the harder one, walk humbly with your God. These are lists that we have that we are required to fulfill that the church has not always done that we do not do. So what do we do about that? What we do is we remember that we are called to repent of our failings, look to Jesus Christ who died on the cross, was physically raised from the dead and is an advocate, and when we can, make it right. That's what we are called to do as believers. But what I will say to those of you in here who are not believers, um, in particular, but any of us who are carrying deep pain and hurt from other people, especially if they claimed Christ, I just want to hold out to you what God's word says really clearly. We worship Christ. We worship Jesus Christ. We do not worship people. We do not. Campus outreach doesn't save you. Your staff person doesn't save you. Your best friend, your family, those people that worked at the church that know better had a list of holiness and love that they failed, that is that is because we do not worship them. We worship Christ. Here's the verse. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says, We proclaim, this is the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth where there had been a great deal of pain. And he said, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Um, I had a story there, but I think I'm going to skip it for time's sake. Um, just a lot of people that, have, that I've known that have walked through our ministry that have experienced um, deep people pain that have taken sometimes months for them to walk through and remember they're disentangling that person who claimed Christ, some of the true things that they said that proclaimed Christ, disentangling that to make sure that the foundation that their faith is on is Jesus Christ of the Bible and disentangling the sin of the ways that people have harmed them. So the third thing, so we've got truth, then we've got people pain, and then the third one is a little more complex and pretty full, but that one would be personal setbacks. Um, and what I mean by personal setbacks is sometimes there are different temperaments. I don't know if you do Enneagram or Strength Finders or um, Myers-Briggs, but there are different temperaments that naturally really embrace some things about Christianity and are naturally repulsed by others. Um, that is true for every temperament. There isn't like, oh, if I was only that one, then I'd really be an easy believer. They all are pressed on by things in the gospel. Um, but not only that, but there are different cultures. There are different ethnic cultures. There are different family cultures that have different things about the whole culture that reflect the glory of God. And there are things about each culture that are repulsed by God's good news. Um, and what I mean by that is just if you think, gosh, I just don't like this idea or I just can't get over this, that could come from your own personal temperament. It could come from your family culture where you learned values and lived them out. It could from, come from your ethnic culture where there are things that were really valued there. And especially when I, we have friends, um, one of my friends from Togo, and she was like, oh, Sam, you're so American. I'm like, yeah, can't help it. But we joke because there are things about Togo culture that I can press on for her that I'm like, but God's word says this and then she's a Christian, so we go back and forth. Um, there are cultures, for example, that have been historically deeply wronged, have deep wrong done to them. We could go through a list of countries that have experienced, people groups that have experienced genocide or complete displacement, like the Hmong people in Minneapolis, have. they do not have a land because they have been kicked out of different Asian countries and groups of them came to California and Minneapolis as refugees not having a land of their own because they were continually rejected. For some of the cultures where they have experienced overwhelmingly hardship, the concept of forgiving others is really ridiculous. 
to forgive other people who have not only ruined your life, but ruined generations of hope? Forgive them? That's ridiculous. That is what some cultures understandably can say. This idea in the, in the Bible, I can't have that one. That one keeps me from embracing Christianity. Then there are other cultures who have a really hard time with justice themes in Scripture. I'm sorry, what? Your God says he's going to take vengeance? Yeah. Why would, why would God take vengeance? Like, hell, that concept? It's a little extreme. No, that, there are cultures that, because they have a hard time, they love their forgiveness, but they hate the justice themes in Scripture, and so they have a difficult with, the, with that aspect of it. So there are different personal setbacks that we can have for different reasons. And then there are internal um, setbacks. There was a man, William Cooper, looks like Cowper. His name is William Cooper, born in the 1700s. He dealt with deliberating depression, debilitating depression. His depression was so great that he sometimes couldn't function and had to depend on people around him to take care of him. He doubted his faith, had a horrid nightmare after he had become a Christian that he was condemned to eternal damnation and couldn't shake the dream and so had to live with believers who would take care of him and remind him of truth. So he wrote actually some poems that were huge in the abolition movement in Europe. So while he was struggling, wrestling, doing this work, writing a hymn about God's sovereignty, even though there are clouds over his sovereignty, did an amazing amount of work, but incredibly suicidal, incredibly depressed. There are sometimes internal issues, setbacks that we have that can give us a hard time as we pursue Christianity on this journey of quest for truth. Um, and on the end of that one, before I open it up for questions, the thing that I would say about that is that we have, what the Bible talks about is a very personal God who knows personally what different people's struggles are. And I, I could give you some verses about that generally for you, but I think what's more powerful and sometimes is narratives. So just to give you an example, there was a man who was so violently against, he was religious and violently against the Christian movement that he would drag people out of their homes, break families apart, watch stand there while people were getting stoned, murdering believers, known for his zeal to take down Christianity. And in his violence against God, God violently opposed him. He was on the road, on the way to take out some more Christians and a bright light came that blinded him. He didn't know how long. It only blinded him for three days, but when you're blind, I don't know if you ever don't feel good, and you're like, I don't know how long this is going to last, but I hope it ends. Blind. Blind for three days. Far as he knew, it could have been forever. Violently, God opposes you because you are violently opposing him. And he became a Christian and suffered for the sake of Christ. There's a man named Nathaniel who was... Um, interacting with Jesus, just a very blunt, I don't know if you know anyone, it's just like, tell you how it is, and that was Nathaniel, and when he was walking up, Nathaniel was like, I know this guy, no guile in him, he will tell you what he thinks, he was like, oh my gosh, how do you know me, how do you know me, and it was just a reminder, God knows who people are and what their barriers are, there was one man who was just one of those tactile learners, like, I have to see it to believe it, I need to see it to believe it. And when everyone heard that he was hearing all the disciples say, Jesus rose, like I saw his body. And he was like, mm, okay. For me to believe that, because you're all a little loony, because everybody's all excited, you see what you want to see, believe what you want to believe, I would have to put my hands through the nails, the nail holes. I would have to do that. Um, well, you got to love that Jesus didn't say, uh, Thomas, I heard you. Here I am. He waited. But when he saw Thomas, and Thomas was like, oh, I mean, he didn't... I believe, oh my gosh, and he fell on his face and was like, Lord. He said, no, no, right here. And that did two things. Not only did it help him feel the physicalness that he would later on doubt, like, were we, were we right? Were we believing? He felt it, but it also reminded him, I saw you. I heard what you were asking about. I knew what you were thinking when you didn't know I was there. That's the kind of personal God that the Bible talks about. So, those are the three things, and, and it's okay if your questions that we have in the next few minutes go outside of those, but truth, people, pain, and then um, the last one, personal setback. So if anybody wants to raise a hand, they can, or if Daniel wants to give you a question, come on. Right. We'll do Daniel and then raise hand if you have a raise hand. Use the mic. All right. So first, can you hear me? Back there? Hello. So first question uh, is, 
What would you say is a great place to start for someone who has lots of questions but still wants to learn more about Christianity? Yeah, that's a great question. If you still have lots of questions and want to grow, I think one of the things that God beautifully gives us is people. I don't think this is a, a journey to go alone. I don't know who you came with or who you see them walking toward the Lord, but I think joining other people and, honestly, everything that I just told you, I didn't even bring it up here. Um, the Bible, I think, is when someone tells me, I just don't believe it's the Bible, one of the things I love to do is, like, can we start going through it together? Because there's some things I have trouble in here with. But if we can look at the specific things together, and where I like to start is in the book of John, because John was one of the four gospel writers who was an eyewitness, and as an eyewitness who wrote it all down, he writes it down. He says, hey, I cannot. He tells you why he's writing the book of John. At the end, he's like, I write this so that you may believe in the Son of God and have life. I'm writing this because I was there, and I saw it, and I felt it, and I was with him. And I'm writing it so you will believe. So I like to start there. Some people are a little more um, intellectual, analytical. And Luke was another writer. He wasn't an eyewitness. He just gathered a lot of reports from other people. And he says, I just have compiled all of these stories together from all the followers, from Jesus' mother, from all these people. I've compiled everything, and I'm just reporting it to you. So there are different, four different people having four different ways of using their own personalities to bring this good news forward. So I think starting in the Gospels is a good place and doing it with people that you know and love and love you. Okay, hands? Okay, yes ma'am. This is coming from like the perspective of someone who, um, like I'm a Christian, but like I kind of question the Bible sometimes because like um, the way I think of it is like, why won't God show himself in our lives if he wants us to like listen, to like, uh, take his guidance, yeah. Um, but he just kind of just left us with like a book for us to read, and like what makes everyone so sure about it, you know? Like what makes everyone just um, hold on to the Bible so tight without actually seeing God? Yeah, that's a great question. So our question was, as a believer, but who has questions and things, why do we just have this book? Why doesn't he do something more? Which is an excellent question. I think what I would say to that is that um, as someone who has gone through times of doubting and have a number of other people who have um, what I personally do, this kind of answers your question, he didn't just give us a book, though he did give us the Bible, but he did give us the person of Jesus Christ, that historical figure, person, historical in history. So sometimes what I do is I start with what I know to be true, absolutely. And what I know absolutely to be true is that there is a person, Jesus Christ, who was a historical figure. And now I can look at extra biblical resources if I want, or biblical resources that are describing his life and so many of those agree about who he was and what he taught. Um, so I start there with that person and the believers that I know around me. Um, this is a terrible, this is like my, my dad told this joke. I'm telling my dad joke. Oh my gosh. So this would be a little bit. Um, he said that, you know, there was a flood and there was this man who was like, I know God's going to save me. And so, um, a boat came by or a truck drove by and they're like, hey, come on. He's like, no, God's going to save me. And then he was like, um, I'm going to wait. And then the water started rising. And so a boat came by and they're like, come on, I'm going to save me. He's like, no, God's going to save me. And then he drives, jumps on the roof and um, the helicopter is like, no, God's going to save me. And then he dies because the water's raised. And he gets to heaven. He's like, God, oh, what are you doing? He's like, I see three options. Um, you didn't take any of them. So I thought you want to come in here. So the idea of meaning, there are many things, not to undermine what you're asking at all. I'm saying that for myself because sometimes I think, God, I want more. I want a facts. I want a presence. I want an epiphany. I want, but when I sometimes write down the mercies that I have seen in my life, even little things that I have, a, I have pages I could afterwards, I would show you. There are times I'm like, how do I know that you were with me in this moment? And sometimes it is a letter from a friend there are times when um, something has showed up, whether it was food or a person, or there are things that I'm like, the timing on that, gosh. And so I think he did give us the Bible. He also gave us the person of Christ and the history and people who hated Christianity writing about it. But he also gives us measures of his Holy Spirit through his people and through his presence in us now, and those are harder to hear and harder to see, but sometimes I just write down, because sometimes it's hard to look at a whole page of, gosh, really, Lord, would you give us affirmation, for example, we're supposed to be in Cincinnati. That feels stupid in so many ways. I have a page of things that just keep happening, and I'm like, <laughs> at some point, I'm like, 
can I have another sign? He's like, I've given you a whole page. Does that, I did not mean to undermine you with that joke. That was for me. Um, <laughs> kind of like one year and out the other. Okay, great. Another thing is like, um, so like, I guess like where I really was coming from was like, um, so like, what makes us like just trust a book like written by like people, like mm -hmm. when it could be like manipulated over time, and things like that. I guess that's what I meant like, yeah. like, not just like, oh, God created the book, but like, what actually like yeah. makes it from God. Absolutely. That's a great question. I will give you, and I see a nod, so I hear those two things. What I will do is I will give you a couple of books that one of them is called The Eyewitness of Jesus Christ by a man named Richard Bauckham. And it talks about the ways that the four Gospels were written and books that were written outside of that um, changed over time. Translated, there's some changes there when translation is happening. There are places where, um, for example, at one point, people asking the same question, there was the Dead Sea Scrolls were um, discovered, and when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, they were more ancient than some of the scriptures that, that had been used to translate the Bible, and they were in agreement. So there's some rules about the ways that rabbis were supposed to pass on their teaching, and there were some um, discrepancies that we could, like I could show you, here's, here's a story that's in the Bible, and this one didn't show up in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so now in the Bible it says, this one doesn't show up in the earliest transcripts. So there are some places where honest scholars have asked that question, but it would be hard to answer in a few minutes, but I could give you three books before we leave, the names of books, where those things have been. And some of it are coming from um, scholars, archaeologists who are not Christians, but are just saying, I can show, like, this is what's supporting the, the Bible um, as a script. So let me pause on your great questions and see if anybody else has. You want to give me another one? Yeah, well, first, there's a lot of questions about the Bible in here. So, Excellent. Um, okay. And make sure you get those resources out there, Sam. Yeah, that's great. Um, and, yeah, so lots of great questions come in. Um, Do you want to follow up, then? because that is a big, let's pause there for a second on the Bible. Um, do you have any other follow-up questions, or if anyone else wants to add to that about what about... Um, I gave you a flyover, so one example would be there are four different people with four different personalities who, one was with Jesus the whole time as an eyewitness. Um, some people are like, how do you know this isn't just a made-up fairy tale story? Like, how come we're putting so much um, emphasis in this? And, and part of that is because when the, the Gospels wrote, and it would take me a minute to write down all of who they were, but a lot of the Gospels were written in ways that we don't write just general stories. Like they would say, and then Simon of Cyrene picked up the cross and he was related to so-and-so. It's almost like they're giving an address who lives in this part of Galilee and it's like, that has nothing to do with the plot here. Like, move on, move on. Um, but things like that were written because the people that were writing them were writing down the way that I would write down how to get around this hotel or who is here and where they're from and what campus they're from. They're writing details so that people in that moment, because they say, in Acts, which Luke wrote, um, Luke and then Acts, and he wrote Acts, which follows up, and he says, there are numbers, hundreds of people who saw these events to go do them. So even the way that it was written at the time was written so that people could go verify, which is why Luke, um, so the people that wrote them were writing them to be that kind of um, genre. Um, and the questions, like I would ask you, which translation were you curious about being the one that lost some of the meaning or there I think we would we could have some more deeper conversations about where you're wondering where the translation might be missing it. Yeah, like, I feel like when when it's translated I feel like um, like I kind of question like are some meanings like lost from mm -hmm. like the King James version to sure. like, the New English version because like just because it's like in English doesn't mean like it's what the Bible Right. Yeah, so great point. So the Vulgate was the first Latin translation of the scriptures. So Jesus spoke in Aramaic. That was his language. And then there was Greek. Greek was what the New Testament was written in, and Hebrew was written, the Old Testament, the way it was written. And lots and lots and lots and lots of copies of all of those. And because it was important for the rabbis to copy specifically, they have lots of copies. We have more data of copied exact handwritten copies of some of the scriptures than we do of the 
um, of our Constitution or older documents or what are the Oedipus and Odyssey. There are things that we have that we look to for history that we put more. But this one is a big one because we're talking about faith in an eternal God, everything, the four points I just told you. This one matters differently than those things. Um, and so I think that would be a good, um, a good thing because then the King James Version was the first English translation in the 1600s, and it did not have all of the other translations back to the Hebrew and Greek that some of the newer translations had. And then you have the changes in English. And so there, some of them are translated word for word because Greek and Hebrew do not just translate word for word, kind of like I'm learning from my girls who learn Chinese. And I'm like, what does that mean? And they're like, uh, it's like a couple sentences, mom, hard to explain, it's a concept. So English translators did the best that they did, but they have, that's why each Bible translation has these scholars who were on this book and these scholars who are on this book. So that is, they debated, how do we say those words to get that meaning across? It's a good question. Can I pause you one second? I want to talk to you right after this because I want to give you some of these. Are there any other questions? Because we have to leave in three minutes. Um, yeah, here's one, a big one. People who are a part of other religions truly believe that they are correct as much absolutely. as Christians do. Absolutely. What sets Christianity apart? Oh, that's a good one. And hard to answer in two minutes. I would say um, what, they, what they believe, which is actually changing, what we, where we agree is that there is a higher power. Um, that is an agreement on, on the major world religions, but a gross overstatement of, of the other world major world religions is that um, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, Islam, um, all of them talk about the path that you have to take to get to God and gross overgeneralization. The difference of Christianity is that you cannot get to God. You cannot be good enough. You cannot read the Bible enough. You cannot know the answers enough. That is the only one that says you're not good enough to get into heaven ever. So Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, born as a baby, will come and live the life that you should have lived and then he will die the death that you deserve so that you can find your life hidden with him and be with him forever. That's a gross overgeneralization. And we have to go. I'm around conference. I have nothing scheduled tomorrow. I would love to talk to anyone that wants to talk. Um, this is a great book. I will be up at the book table. There are some, I have a list of books about Bible translations and things like that that can also help if she covers it also. Thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at co.nyc.com indie.com